we sit prior to these sutta exploration series to prepare the mind. And I encourage you to do that every time you listen to a Dhamma talk or listen to a sutta. And especially when you read a section or a segment of verses or suttas on your own and then sit to kind of allow it to be absorbed. So whether you sit prior or during or after, the benefits are quite enormous. So try to see if you can sit with that today as I go over the sutta with you, which happens to be sutta number 51.20 from the Sangyutta Nikaya, which are the linked or connected discourses. It's a vast, vast um, ocean of suttas. Um, and it, it has thousands of suttas in it. And it's only one of the Nikayas. Uh, it's a competitor as far as quantities go of suttas is the Anguttara Nikaya, which are the numerical discourses. So the sutta comes from uh, the collection that is called the Great the collection or the Mahavagga within the Sangyutta Nikaya. And it has several subgroupings. So you have thousands of suttas grouped under one grouping that go under one umbrella that is called a collection. In this case, the collection is called the Mahavagga. And the subgrouping is called the Idhipada Sangyutta which has within it collection of suttas that are specifically geared towards explanations given by Lord Buddha or even uh, his chief disciples, in this case, Venerable Mahamogallana, on the four bases of psychic or spiritual power. So this comes from a sub-subgrouping of that, and that is called the Pasada Kampana Vagga, or the verse on the uh, shaking of the house, shaking of the house. So the sutta's title, uh, the sutta itself being 51.20 in uh, its categorization, the Sangyutta Nikaya, it's called, in Pali, it's called Idhipada Vibhanga Sutta. Idhipada Vibhanga Sutta. And we've come across Vibhanga before in our suttas, um, and that stands for exposition. So exposition on the four bases of psychic power. So shaking of the house, what is that all about? Uh, there was an incident where uh, there was a, well, first there was a, a, a major donor, she, um, it was a, she was she was the female benefactress of the sasana 
So we had Anatapindika, the male lay disciple, and then we had the Visaka, Visaka actually. And she was the female, uh, uh, most affluent uh, lady of, uh, of India at that time. Um, so wealthy that the king would borrow money from her because uh, she was uh, a businesswoman. And uh, so she had constructed a, a uh, monastery for Lord Buddha. And uh, so you had a group of monks sitting there lounging around. You always have those characters. Not every monk, not every student was there for the right reasons, just like today. People are people. So, and one of the unique situations um, um, that you can come across, we see it happen there when Lord Buddha turns to Venerable Mahamogalana and encourages him to demonstrate his psychic powers, which is very rare. Uh, because he was, he was known also for discouraging showing your abilities like that. In fact, there is there are rules against that as monks. So Venerable Mahamogalan, so because he wants to bring up, inculcate faith in these other monks who are so fascinated with material things because they're looking at the columns, they're looking at these beautiful beams of wood, carvings. Ah, oh, look how beautiful and how much it must have cost. Nothing to do with the Dhamma. And Venerable Mahamogalana goes and I think he reclines against something and then he touches one of the major columns holding up the whole house. And it's a multi-storied house. In those days, it's like a mansion. And he touches it gently with his big toe. And the whole house shakes. And they say it was shaking like an earthquake. He just touched it with his big toe. And only one toe. <laughs> so that came to be known as shaking of the house. So we have a whole section. And underneath it, we have the whole... Idipada, or the four bases of power, psychic power, listed under. And uh, so the focus went straight from the house to, oh my, what was that all about? And so I just wanted to briefly mention about the title because it, it sounds somewhat odd, um, shaking of the house. So uh, the sutta, due to its title, uh, as, as I mentioned, exposition or explanation, falls within the category of other uh, uh, analyses type or vibhanga. Uh, we had previously uh, the Dhatu Vipanga Sutta, where um, Lord Buddha met with Pukkusati, if you remember. Um, and uh, so we have uh, suttas like that called the vibhangas. They go deep into the explanation of whatever theme they are touching upon, they're being addressed. Um, so here we have uh, the specific steps to be cultivated in order for the person to get to experience these four bases of power and their relevancy is also demonstrated. So idhi in Pali, it's uh, in Sanskrit, it's called siddhi, 
which are uh, psychic powers, unusual powers. Sometimes they're called abhinyas when they have come to a fruition stage of, of um, they're fully locked in basically. The person has the ability to do certain things. Uh, but in this sutta, we see it referring also to the essential uh, constituents that make a meditation uh, practice uh, truly uh, a successful one, um, a proper one. So you don't have to be looking at it in the, within the parentheses of psychic powers per se. Um, they're more than that, uh, much more than that. So we look at Idhipada uh, in, the, in, in, in both their uh, worldly and supramundane aspects, therefore. Um, so the person uh, progressively goes higher and higher into jhanas, for example, um, in the reaching deeper states of mind, stage by stage, with which they can actually come to experience psychic powers. And then there's the lokuttara, which are the supramundane aspect uh, or aspects of it, of developing the idipada or the four bases. And that is where the person becomes an arahant. So uh, by destroying the asavas or the uh, mental contaminants. So they're not about psychic uh, powers uh, only per se. So uh, they're definitely involved, these four, which we will be going over um, extensively, they're definitely involved in every single one of um, the stages that we go through in order for us to gain uh, success in them. Um, in fact, we cannot be you know, uh, expecting to advance without having these four uh, bases of psychic power. Years ago, I used to think that they were just there if the person wants to attain some psychic abilities. Uh, but that's not the case at all. Um, because they have everything to do with your meditation. Uh, whatever level that you're on. Um, so it's not about wanting or not wanting psychic powers. They're just part and parcel of uh, your practice, proper practice bearing fruit. So, and in this sutta, we're given detailed instructions on each of these four um, and how they relate to uh, success of your uh, practice. And um, they are four, as I mentioned, the first one is Chanda, which sometimes they're translated, uh, some scholars translate them as desire, um, uh, enthusiasm, will. I like to translate them as fervor. Um, and the second one is virya, which is effort, or um, I like to use persevering effort or persevering energy sometimes. Chitta. Uh, which is the mind or directed mind and vimansa, which if you recall from the last sutta we covered together is all about examining, investigating. So uh, it is only when we include them in full that suddenly we notice a major difference, uh, a qualitative difference um, in uh, 
taking place in our meditation, basically. And um, with them, our progress becomes uh, consistent. Uh, if you think of them like that, uh, that can be very beneficial to your practice. And, um, and that's one of the other reasons why we call them four bases of uh, spiritual success also, not just psychic power. So let's begin. Because when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed, they bring many fruits, for they are of great benefit. If you noticed here in, in the sutta, we don't usually get this type of uh, like, you know, we don't have the typical uh, setting up of the scene, as it were, of the sutta, like, thus have I heard, or um, at one time, Lord Buddha was sitting, uh, staying in Savat. We don't have that. And that's a, a, a curious uh, characteristic that we see. Uh, because if you recall, as I mentioned earlier, this happens to be one of the suttas that comes in a collection of other suttas. Uh, and this is the most in-depth uh, in um, analysis, exposition of the Idhipadas within the section of suttas that cover the Idhipadas, psychic powers or spiritual success. So the focus here is on directly jumping in to the crux of the matter. Um, and by the way, most of these suttas dealing with the four uh, bases of psychic power usually are attributed or have something to do with Venerable Mahamogallana at one point or another, because he was the second only to the Buddha in his uh, abilities, psychic abilities. So he was par excellence number one in that among the students. Um, and we even have, uh, in one of the other suttas within this link of, of, of suttas, linkage of suttas, um, the Idhi Muggallana Sutta, um, and, uh, which, which is 51.31 Sutta from the Sangita Nikaya, uh, that's the Sutta where Lord Buddha directly asks the students, disciples, and how do you think when uh, Muggallana came about with his psychic abilities. How, what methods do you think because he uh, applied in order for him to become who he is in his abilities? And uh, so that's a big way of, 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 of uh, a person receiving accolades from one's own teacher, validation. And Lord Buddha directly goes into the specifics uh, which we also see here covered in detail, in fact. Um, so try to see the sutta as um, one uh, key bead, if you like, a bead uh, in a string of other beads or suttas discussing the four bases as they make up a, a, a beautiful necklace. So uh, back to the sutta. And how do the four bases of psychic power bring many fruits, becoming of great benefit when they are cultivated and developed? Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by fervor, driven 
by that enthusiasm, accompanied by active endeavor while thinking to himself, I will neither let my fervor become too slackened nor too strained, neither letting it become constricted internally nor be distracted or scattered externally. This is a um, concentration that is moved and propelled by desire and uh, by enthusiasm. And as I mentioned in the past, uh, unlike some uh, people uh, might have uh, misconstrued, uh, the Dhamma or the Buddhist uh, teachings don't shun desire altogether. There is this thing called Dhamma Chanda, which is the desire for Dhamma. We need to have some level of desire, some fervor, otherwise life cannot happen. And the same is the case here. So um, this kind of a fervor, when it's pushed um, uh, in that direction uh, towards the Dhamma with that concentrative abilities, they can turn into Chanda Samadhi. Samadhi, the collectedness of mind that is uh, fortified by that enthusiasm or that fervor. So there is the coming into focus, if you will, this, this collectedness of interest, if you like to think of it like that. Uh, much like the collecting of the sun's rays under a magnifying glass to make the light become much more powerful, uh, in fact, compelling enough to, to burn, in this case, to burn through ignorance. That's why it's called the Dhamma Chanda. Uh, instead of, let's say, uh, Kama Chanda, which is desire for sensual lust, um, which makes us even more entrenched and, and drenched in, 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 in ignorance. So, Continuing on, in this way, he remains actively observing whatever is in front of him and whatever is behind. Thus, he sees what is in front as if it were behind, seeing what is behind him as if it were in front. He sees what is below as if it were above him, seeing what is above as if it were below him. And whatever he sees by day, he also sees by night while seeing by night as if it were day. And when his heart thus is kept open and unshielded, the bhikkhu cultivates a mind that is beaming with light. Chanda or the desire, the, the, the fervor mentioned is necessary at pretty much every aspect of, of our path, of the path. Uh, there is a deliberate movement, uh, a drive uh, in a certain direction uh, whereby we continuously want to feel uh, we need to put more effort in that direction. Um, this is the, the number one cure uh, to pull us out of complacency and laziness. Uh, being bored, for example, uh, looking for different interests, uh, maybe even changing or wanting to change our meditation object. 
to try to spice things up maybe um, or thinking that the problem is the technique or the teacher or the type of instruction we're receiving or some other factors. So chanda also can be seen as, as another aspect of virya, which is uh, coming up next. Um, and virya together with chanda, they dislodge us. They pull us out of um, the ditch of in, in, in inertial living, uh, the complacency, um, the laziness, or the sluggishness or feeling drowsy or wanting to sleep. Um, um, so issues that we all have dealt with or deal with um, um, at some point in our practice. Further bhikkhus, the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by persevering effort, that's virya, accompanied by active endeavor, while thinking to himself, I will neither let my persevering effort become too slackened nor too strained, neither letting it become constricted internally nor be distracted or scattered externally. In this way, he remains actively observing whatever is in front of him and whatever is behind. Thus, he sees what is in front as if it were behind, seeing what is behind him as if it were in front. He sees what is below as if it were above him, seeing what is above as if it were below him. And whatever he sees by day, he also sees by night, while seeing by night as if it were day. And with his heart thus kept open and unshielded, the bhikkhu cultivates a mind that is beaming with light. And we're going to see this brief uh, description as to what takes place with every single one of the four bases uh, that we're going to go through. So, and there's a reason why Lord Buddha would repeat statements like this to drive the point home. Because sometimes we like to think, okay, we get it. Like you said it already once. Why do we need to hear it again? Um, there's a reason. There's a reason why Lord Buddha mentioned them. And because every time you repeat something and your mind, because not every time your mind is fully there, all the elements, all the factors are not there. I mean, we're dealing with a human being today, an educated human being, uh, an av on average, having no more than 18 minutes attention span. That's the recent number that I saw. Um, 15 years ago, it was 25 minutes or 30 minutes. So it's exponentially dropping. So, which necessitates it even more for us to read or reread um, or listen in this case, sections that are being repeated instead of putting the dreaded ellipses dot dot dots and then just like yeah you know cut things short because that also have, helps us to see as to why we're studying the suttas why we're reading or why we're listening to the suttas in the first place you know no one's going to give us a, a thing uh, a prize at the end of finishing sooner um, these are helpful to help us become arahants. That's the finish line to aspire towards. So here uh, I wanted to mention how both 
fervor and persevering energy are included within the Eightfold Path's right effort portion. Um, Samavayama, uh, because they happen to be key ingredients uh, that serve as, as prerequisites for samadhi to take place. So think of them as the two right effort portions. So if the person is dozing off, if the person is drowsy, you're not able to pull yourself up, to shock yourself up, uh, to sit and to stay on task, to stay on your med uh, meditation object, then you're simply not applying the right effort. You're applying wrong effort. Uh, uh, so we want samavayama. We want the, uh, the right effort. Um, so further bhikkhus, now we get to the third uh, basis, uh, base um, of psychic power. Further, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by the directed mind, accompanied by active endeavor, while thinking to himself, I will neither let my directed mind become too slackened nor too strained, neither letting it become constricted internally nor be distracted or scattered externally. By the way, we're going to be uh, highlighting what these terms um, are really talking about the too slack and the too rigid or strained, uh, constricted, etc. In this way, he remains actively observing whatever is in front of him and whatever is behind. Thus, he sees what is in front as if it were behind, seeing what is behind him as if it were in front. He sees what is below as if it were above him, seeing what is above as if it were below him. And whatever he sees by day, he also sees by night while seeing by night as if it were day. And with his heart thus kept open and unshielded, the bhikkhu cultivates a mind that is beaming with light. Further bhikkhus, the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by examination, accompanied by active endeavor while thinking to himself, I will neither let my examination become too slackened nor too strained, neither letting it become constricted internally, nor be distracted or scattered externally. Here see uh, the role of examination. Try to observe how the investigation part uh, again comes up. You've heard me say so many times how this path is all about wisdom, 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 panya. Well, what is panya? It's not like somebody's going to come and dump a bucket of wisdom in your head, in your heart. Something is going to happen out of the blue. No, it is a continuously growing uh, resource of understanding that uh, owes its presence to your efforts to constantly be curious enough to probe deeper into phenomena, into your own perceptions, into your own ideas. And then look at the reality that is taking place in front of you. And for that reason, it is absolutely paramount for us to be looking at the suttas closely. Because we all have our own notions of, oh, oh my experience is this. My experience is that. And we can easily be overrating ourselves, for example. We can easily even call ourselves arahants. 
I mean, there's nobody stopping you from saying, calling yourself an arahant. Uh, there's no, you know, Dhamma police or something to come and, you know, charge you for that. No, uh, that is your conscience. But we have this life, so we need to go and look at the suttas to, to make most of this life and the effort that we're putting in. Unless we have vimansa, we're always going to falter. So vimansa is number one because it belongs to the wisdom path of uh, the three trainings, sila, samadhi, panya. So examination belongs to the wisdom portion of the three trainings. Uh, and that's how we, uh, um, we can see the evidence of progress taking place in meditation. Or, or when it's absent, uh, it's declined. When the person is declining. And uh, meanwhile, the directed mind that we just covered earlier, and that also, um, um, which basically is chitta uh, of the four bases, and that is representing the samadhi portion. Sila samadhi, samadhi portion. Um, and in case you're wondering about fervor and, and, and virya, they are key components to maintaining your sila. Without virya, without having fervor, it's very difficult to maintain sila, your virtue. Especially when you're in the crossroads and you don't know where to go, which way to go, how to do it. There needs to be that trust and the energy behind it which is absolutely essential to stay virtuous. So in this way, he remains actively observing whatever's in front of him, whatever's behind. Thus he sees what is in front as if it were behind. Seeing what is behind him as if it were in front. He sees what is below as if it were above him. Seeing what is above as if it were below him. And whatever he sees by day, he also sees by night. While seeing by night as if it were day. And with his heart thus kept open and unshielded, the bhikkhu cultivates a mind that is beaming with light. Now we're getting into the breakdown of each. And what bhikkhus is meant by fervor that is too slackened? It is fervor that is weakened by laziness, combined with laziness. This is what is meant by fervor that is too slackened. Yes, Bhante, I do want to uh, sit uh, an hour a day. I do, I do want to, uh, uh, I do want it. I, 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 you know, there's no doubt of your, um, the purity of, uh, shall we say, the desire, but the desire is weak. It's, it's nicely placed, but there's nothing there to back it up. It's very weak, dominated by laziness, pure and simple. And only the person can push themselves to add more, more, more zest, more, more chanda, more, more enthusiasm, fervor. Because they're going to be the ones who will benefit ultimately, not the teacher or, you know, anyone else. So again, fervor here is our driving enthusiasm. Um, you can call it even a, a warm uh, wish. Basically, our motivation to engage and do the work of purifying the mind. No matter how many times you fall, you pick yourself up and you go back on the saddle, as they say. And what bhikkhus is meant by fervor that is too strained? 
It is fervor that is agitated by restlessness, combined with restlessness. This is what is meant by fervor that is too strained. Usually fear does the job here, or, or, or um, even, even conceit when we compare ourselves to someone else. Um, oh, I have to look, 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 look. Uh, she's sitting better or, or I overheard some people say that they're advancing and I'm not. So now I have to try harder. So this is where fervor becomes misplaced uh, or at least not having the right characteristic because now it is drenched in restlessness. Uh, so there is a balance that, is, is, uh, that we need to be after here. And what bhikkhus is meant by fervor that is constricted internally? It is fervor that is weakened by dullness and drowsiness, combined with dullness and drowsiness. This is what is meant by fervor that is constricted internally. Dullness and drowsiness, sounds familiar? Laziness, sleepiness, losing of interest, not being with the meditation object. Uh, not being dedicated to it, losing faith in it even, uh, thinking, ah, this is not the right meditation object. I have to talk to the teacher. We, can, we need to change this and not look at how much am I putting into this? Am I resisting? Do I have a love affair with, with sleepiness? Many of us do. So we need to address it and, and take care of it as soon as possible. And what because is meant by fervor that is distracted or scattered externally? It is fervor that is constantly depleted by being distracted again and again, scattered externally on account of pursuing the five sensual pleasures. This is what is meant by fervor that is distracted or scattered externally. Here we see how the four bases of power have to be constantly maintained. Like a, 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 uh, a person who is a helicopter mechanic. If you fly or know anything about helicopters, even remotely, uh, you need to also know that they need to be constantly maintained. Uh, they need to be pampered. They need to be always looked after, much more so than, than let's say, a, a plane, uh, a narrow plane. So our four bases of power have to be properly maintained by us in order for us to counteract these four that were listed again and again. The, the being too slackened, being uh, too rigid or too strained, too strained, uh, being constricted internally, and being distracted or scattered externally. And, um, and if, if you noticed, some of you might notice a pattern here, uh, how in the case of the Satta Bojangas, the seven factors of awakening, um, as a tool, as a tool set of, of, of helpful tools, instruments, interventions to strengthen the seven factors of awakening, we have the Panchanivarana which are the five hindrances, right? Uh, so those can be seen as enemies or they can be seen as our best uh, teachers, uh, friends, 
they can help us to improve the quality and come to a balance between all seven factors. Now here we see uh, another uh, pattern, very similar, but instead of the five hindrances, we see these four, um, uh, they're called the chatu dosa, the four faults, if you will, um, four, uh, four mistakes, if you will. And they address the four basis of power specifically. And so each of these, or with each of these four bases, they need to be uh, resisted properly, each of these. The too rigid one, or the too slack one, uh, the too constricted one, meaning the laziness part coming in, uh, or the scattered one, uh, where the eyes, the, the six senses basically, are always pulling us away from the meditation. So the person is always bringing it in, bringing it in, bringing it in constantly because it's a lot of repetition in order for the brain, the mind to be trained. If you have a beautiful stallion that is able to follow the directions of its rider, it didn't come like that. It didn't happen. There was a lot of repetition, a lot of disciplining involved. And that is what you're doing with this highly sophisticated tool when completed properly called your mind, your brain. It's biological equivalent, the tool that allows us to utilize the full resources of the mind. So we're training it to pull it out of maladaptive behaviors into something that is quite uh, helpful in giving you higher states of awareness, consciousness, if you will. And how bhikkhus, does the bhikkhu remain actively observing as he sees what is in front as if it were behind, seeing what is behind him as if it were in front? Here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu fully understands and discerns with wisdom while actively observing whatever is taking place both in front as well as behind him. What does that sound like? The person has powerful sati. It's not something that's reserved only during the sitting. While they're moving, while they're walking, they're completely observant. You know, those, those vacuum cleaners they have, I don't even know their name, like they're round circular things that move around the house. They're, you know, some call it the primitive version of an AI. But in many cases, that robot has more mindfulness than many people because it needs to do so many calculations in order for it to navigate around the floor, the ground. So it doesn't slam against the, the, you know, the, the trash bin, against the chair, against any of the legs of the chair, against people walking or dogs walking or cats walking. Now, how many of us are absolutely uh, aware of our surroundings? So a person who's able to see what is in front is also able to see what is behind. And when we're seeing, that doesn't necessarily just be referring to the eyes, the biological uh, 
organs that we have here in our skulls. So in this manner, because the bhikkhu remains actively observing as he sees what is in front as if it were behind, seeing what is behind him as if it were in front. Um, I get a kick out of you know reading some scholars work on and commentators uh, as they try to uh, explain and come up or formulate their own interpretations uh, when they come across statements like this, uh, you know, seeing what is in front as, as what is behind. So they, they're really like scratching their heads to try to understand um, the cryptic language, if you will, uh, because most commentators or scholars are not practitioners, uh, especially practitioners of meditations like this one in particular that's taking you straight into um, what is involved and what is the meditator seeing? What is their experience? So some of them, um, like some scholars, when they come across a statement like seeing what is in front as if it were behind or what is below as above or above as below, they really start to push it their theories and you know ideas which can be quite comical aside from misleading of course um, so many times they look at it as a temporal thing like as if it was before earlier um, which would be seen as a behind um, and and seeing that relevance in the present moment of what is in front. Let's say they use uh, uh, vipassana lingo, if you will, of looking at the uh, different states of mind, different consciousnesses coming in and, and, and out of existence constantly, constantly. So one would be seen as a before, another one would be seen as, 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 as a later. So that usually I've seen them be described as a, uh, from a temporal point of view versus what I like to propose here uh, to be seen more in a spatial sense where you can also uh, look at it, uh, you, know, as a, uh, you know, as a matter of fact. Because if you're mindful as you're walking, as you're moving, especially later on when we get to the uh, perception of light practice, meditation. Whatever is behind you becomes as clear to you as if they were front in front of you. If your meditation is, if you have mahasati, if your mindfulness is that deep, is that constant, you become fully aware. And uh, so, in the case of the shedding of uh, light, let's say, perception of light, uh, you know, you can use the example of the sun, for example. Uh, the sun, when it shines, when it radiates its rays, it doesn't just radiate in one direction, let's say to the front. You know from your own practice. And you see how it's, it's, it's supposed to go in all different directions, like a sphere. So when we are becoming more and more mindful, especially with a meditation like the aloka sanya, the perception of light, 
uh, it is everywhere. So not looking at it temporally, but more of a spatial sense uh, is, is a lot helpful, I found, to uh, understand and describe this statement. And how bhikkhus does the bhikkhu remain actively observing as he sees what is below as if it were above him? seeing what is above as if it were below him. Here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu carefully reviews and examines his physical body, seeing it wrapped up in this bag of skin full of impurities within, while scanning it from the bottom of his feet, moving upwards, and then from the tips of his head hairs, scanning downwards. As he ponders, in this body, there are to be found head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. Also flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestines, small intestines, the stomach with undigested food inside, feces, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, snot, synovial fluid, and urine. Um, in, this, in, in the old days, you know, uh, people would go to cremation grounds and they would see these things and, and, and they were even doing surgeries at the time. Ayurveda was very advanced. They even did eye surgeries and things. Um, so uh, these are not to be seen as absolutes in a sense. Um, because obviously we have a lot more uh, tissues, a lot more uh, organs and things like that. But this pretty much captures roughly what's inside. And, and it's being used as an object of meditation, ultimately. So we don't have to look at them literally, in a sense. So long as your mind is able to capture and identify, let's say, the liver and seeing the different phases of the liver as it goes through, or the skin, especially when we are so mesmerized by the physical beauty of a person. We're lusting after a person, this and that. The easiest thing is just flip things around. Just, you know, look at their intestines. Interesting image, right? All of a sudden, where, all, where did all that attractive quality go? especially when you probe into the intestines. Now we're getting into interesting and very smelly territory, right? So this removes a person from the grasp of, of the senses. That's what we're looking at to disconnect the person from identifying, identification. Um, so Bear that in mind, please, when you're viewing these 31 or 32 parts of the body, uh, which is a very powerful meditation uh, technique in this tradition, by the way. Uh, in this manner, because the bhikkhu remains actively observing as he sees what is below as if it were above him, seeing what is above as if it were below him. So when you're looking at the body like this, going top to bottom, bottom up, uh, what we're basically looking at is namarupa, mentality, materiality, physicality, 
and uh, mentality. Namarupa. So, and when we look at these different organs and uh, different tissues of the body, different segments, if you will, what we look at uh, is their relevancy to the four great elements. Um, Chatu Mahadatu, the four great elements, which basically, uh, roughly people say it's, it's earth, water, fire, and air. But I would rather have you think of them in the form of their, um, in their aspect, uh, in, in their qualities. Solidity, for example, solidity, whether in a, like the skull, for example, the bones, they're a lot more solid, let's say, than the liver, right? Or the brain, which is a, a tissue, which is, when you look at it, it's more fluid, but still it is more solid than, let's say, bile right? Or urine. So think of it in terms of solidity, fluidity, heat. If you don't have heat, for example, you don't have enough agni in your gut, in your intestines, which are necessary for digestion. You also need agni in the brain to indicate that there's enough mental activity to support your practice or to support just basic thinking. And finally, there is the wind or the movement, it's also called, um, the gases that move, the movement of even blood cells in your capillaries, um, which can easily shift if there's, uh, if, if there's death occurring. And now the capillaries or the blood circulating within the cardiac muscles or the heart suddenly stop. And now that fluidity which also had within it heat, which also had within it movement, now becomes what? Because there's no movement, the heart's not beating, there is solidity. And that's why when people do CPR, compression, heart compressions, what they're doing is trying to maintain that movement until the heart kicks back into gear again and uh, the, the movement starts and the heat comes back, et cetera. Otherwise, when the person dies, the blood will just turn black, turn solid. Um, so they want to make sure that uh, those capillaries keep pushing through them, the blood, even sometimes one blood cell at a time, that's how narrow they are. Same with the brain, uh, some of the nerves in the capillaries in the brain so that is, think of it in the form, uh, in, in relation to the four uh, great elements um, within your body, within your body. And so that's the rupa portion. So with the nama portion, in case you're wondering, that's where we have uh, intention or volition. We have perception. We have uh, vedana. Uh, we have also pasa, which is contact. And we need to have attention, attention. So um, when a person goes into a coma, for example, most of the nama is off whack. The rupa is there because the bodily functions are happening, but nama is not. And, and there's no way of communicating with that person because you need nama, not just rupa. We need nama. Uh, in order for us to communicate with the with with the person. So anyhow, 
and how because does the bhikkhu remain actively observing whereby whatever he sees by day he also sees by night while seeing by night as if it were day here bhikkhus during the night the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by fervor accompanied by active endeavor which he engages in fully undiminished in all of its qualities, signs and attributes, continuously and uninterrupted during the night. Similarly, during the day, the bhikkhu strives by cultivating the base of psychic power that grows as a result of concentration impelled by fervor, accompanied by active endeavor, which he engages in fully undiminished in all of its qualities, signs and attributes, continuously and uninterrupted during the day. In this way, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu remains actively observing, whereby whatever he sees by day, he also sees by night, while seeing by night as if it were day. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it's, the term is um, um, aloka or light, uh, sanya, perception. Um, uh, perception of light. So several months ago, we came across the dozing off sutta, the Pachalayamana sutta of the Anguttara Nikaya, um, where Lord Buddha, if you remember, was advising uh, Venerable Mahamogallana, who was still struggling at the time for one week until he became an Arant. Um, so he was struggling uh, to stay up. On one end, he was getting drowsy, sleepy, and on the other, he was becoming, he was very much distracted and agitated. So he was, you know, back and forth between the two extremes of the pendulum. So that's where Lord Buddha gave him the perception of light or daylight meditation, because uh, it overcomes drowsiness, plain and simple bringing in light into the mind. And it, it also removes this sense of fogginess in the mind of not being present or feeling weird, um, you know, almost, well, sluggish. Um, and uh, sometimes even forgetful. That's another symptom that uh, people experience or mentally simply tired. And despite how many like energizing drinks you might have, you still crash at the end. Um, so, but so on a, on a, on a worldly level, like, uh, you know, uh, mundane level, if you will, we can see the perception of light meditation pulling you out of that sluggishness, drowsiness. That's one, of course. Uh, but the second, which is the Lokuttara, or the supramundane version of this practice. Or, or purpose, rather, not version, purpose of this practice would be to gain jnana dasana, which is called knowledge and vision. Knowledge and vision. Um, and um, that one we see uh, in the Samadhi Bhavana Sutta of the Anguttara Nikaya, Book of the Fours, uh, where Lord Buddha talks about it uh, more. Um, so jnana dasana is what distinguishes a, a person who has uh, dasana means um, not the psychic eye, uh, it, it means the vision of the Dhamma, 
means that the person is now a sotapanna, jnana dasana, knowledge and vision. So, and how bhikkhus does the bhikkhu keep his heart open and unshielded as he cultivates a mind that is beaming with light? Here bhikkhus, the bhikkhu fully understands and discerns with wisdom while actively observing the brilliance of light witnessed during the day, which he carries in his heart, remembering and maintaining it throughout. In this manner bhikkhus, the bhikkhu keeps his heart open and unshielded as he cultivates a mind that is beaming with light. So, it is playing a trick on your drowsiness, basically. So during the day, you're pretty much recording all the aspects, qualities, attributes, characteristics of how it feels to be in daytime. So my encouragement to uh, meditators that have uh, that have um, encouraged, instructed to have uh, this be their meditation object um, would be something like take in as much information as you can about the light, how it feels, um, and 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 remember that, bring that in bring that into uh, other aspects of your, of your practice, uh, especially when you notice, let's say at the end, um, nearing the end of the workday, especially after you've eaten. Um, so we call it food coma, right? See if you can actually bring that awareness of the light into your mind to see what happens. If somebody's blazing this huge projector light on your face, you know, you're really gonna be <laughs> unable to fall asleep. So, um, so you're doing that to assist you in your, in your practice. And it really requires a lot of effort, of course, as you know. Um, but in this sutta, if you notice, we're not just getting the four bases of power, but we're also getting Venerable Mahamogalana and his own methods of becoming an Arahant. We're also seeing that. Because Lord Buddha is also talking about the perception of light, which was crucial for Venerable Mahamogalana to beat, to overcome his drowsiness. And to reestablish the four bases of psychic power in him in order for him to complete the task of the holy life by overcoming these four, uh, the chatu dosa or the four faults that I mentioned. So next follows uh, the same formula for each of the other three. So, so far we've seen the fervor, but to save on time, I'm going to skip, even though you have the copies of uh, the sutta that have, have, have completed. So please go over it, um, over, over each of these sections. Uh, and I'm just going to highlight uh, as, as I go on. So the next stage would be the perceiving, uh, persevering effort where Lord Buddha talks about uh, not to slackening and not to strain, not to constrict internally, which we know now what it is. It's dullness and drowsiness. 
or being scattered or dispersed in the attention, which we also know what it is. It's basically being uh, led on by the sensual pleasures and everything that distracts us, everything that pulls us out. Let's say if you were practicing perception of light, all of a sudden the perception of a beautiful music you might have overheard during the week suddenly comes in, tries to steal your attention. So you become cognizant of that and you stop it. And that's way, uh, that way you can actually stop the scattering. So your meditation does not weaken. Um, one thing I wanted to mention about also the, uh, the 32 or 31 parts of the body, as we're going over them, you notice the first five, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. These uh, are, they're very important, uh, specifically. You don't have to do all the 32 uh, to pull yourself out. Uh, let's say a moment where you're completely subdued by, or, or actually enslaved rather with sensuality, especially when you're meditating. So you can only, you, you, can, you can just go ahead and use just any one of these five. Um, head hairs, body hairs, nails, teeth, and skin. They're so important and so powerful that they are seen as the great five. Uh, we call them the five kambatanas. Uh, and they're also given to us as monastics, especially when we are uh, taking the higher ordination, becoming bhikkhus, um, as meditation objects by our preceptors. Um, so they're very powerful. And if you remember with one of the young, young arahants uh, that we went uh, over in uh, one previous sutta, he uh, became an arahant as the hair was coming off. They were shaving his hair. So with every single one, he was saying, So with each one, he, he achieved a certain level. Um, so earlier I mentioned about Samadhi Bhavana uh, Sutta and uh, in relation to Jnana Dasana. Um, I wanted to uh, briefly read uh, a portion of that sutta, include that, and that is from Anguttara Nikaya, um, the Book of the Fours, uh, 41st sutta. Um, so in it, Lord Buddha states the following, bhikkhus, uh, and what is the way of developing the collectedness of mind in order to gain knowledge and vision? Here, bhikkhus, the bhikkhu attends to the perception of light as he focuses his attention on the perception of daylight as it is during daytime. So at night, he continues to focus his attention on the perception of daylight. And with an uncovered and open mind, he dwells with an illuminated mind. Bhikkhus, this is the way of developing the collectedness of mind in order to gain knowledge and vision. Sometimes we want more and more specific data. 
instructions as we skip the whole practice. No, no, I'll start when I have all the information, all the steps. We've become lazy in, in, in some ways. Here we have a full set of instructions, which have somehow survived 26 centuries and made it thus far. And we're now going over them. What we need to do is apply in order for us to know that the efficacy and the, the, the truth of these instructions and their validity rather, we need to try them, give our best effort in trying it. Uh, so if you are someone who really has to struggle with sitting, whether it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, this and that, or you're about to sit your normal one hour or two hours, and for some reason, you feel sluggish. Instead of thinking to yourself as, this is it, sorry guys, uh, you know, I'll make up for it tomorrow, but it's time for me to sleep. Okay, that's always on the table, I guess, but that's not gonna be an opportunity for growth, guaranteed. The growth happens when there is a resistance to that. Because we're not going to go into Nibbana or Arahantship with a limousine. Okay? It's not going to take place with absolute 100% comfort, the way things are going, the way we're lounging. We're like, no. There will be some strife. There will be some resistance, guaranteed. And it needs to be. That's how the muscles, if you will, figuratively speaking, uh, your mind will develop. So take this technique, apply it in your own sitting, especially in those moments when you really feel like I'm, I'm, I'm drooping. I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe how many times my head just, my chin touched my chest as, as I lost awareness. Muster up the courage. Bring Chanda back. Bring Virya back bringing the image of light into your practice at that moment is really, really beneficial. Um, so, and in it, the directed mind is extremely important. Um, constantly making sure the chitta, what Lord calls it chitta or the mind um, is fully supported. The fuel reservoirs are full. There's enough gas in it to direct the mind in that, uh, in that direction, basically. That's why the intention is not enough, as I was saying earlier. The intention, intention to sit, because later on you're gonna to go to the teacher and say, sorry, I wanted to sit for one hour. I was barely able to pull off 21 minutes well, where do you think the other, you know, um, 39 are going to come from? They come in from the directed mind that is fully supported. Otherwise, we're going to collapse under the weight of dullness and the pressures of whatever the six senses are throwing in our direction. Um, so I wanted to address that. Uh, and... Uh, a few words I wanted to say before I stop. Uh, 
and, and open for questions. Um, the, the aloka sanya, the perception of light is, is as I mentioned, is, is conducive to the development of jnana dasana, knowledge and vision, knowledge and vision. And, um, but as we'll see later, it also leads the person to develop the dibba chakku, which is the divine eye. The divine eye is another way of saying uh, clairvoyance, the ability to see, and which takes the person to experience the, the uh, supernatural abilities or abhinyas. And when we talk about the perception of light, we must remember that much like the cases with radiating metta, metta, here too, we need to look at it as the feeling of light, just like in the case of metta, it's a feeling of loving kindness. It's not just the image, but we need to feel metta. In this case, it's the feeling of the light. How does it feel? How is it experienced by you within the mind, for example? Does it bring up feelings of being, for example, clean, being bright, luminous, um, something that pierces through the dark clouds of ignorance? So the meditator is trying to feel the light more so than just visualizing the light. How does the light feel behind the eyelids when you close your eyes? Is it still dark or there's a different, there's a different experience, sensation coming in? How does it feel upon your skin, in your heart? So that's another reason why we have the words uh, unshielded and uncovered, the heart that is kept uncovered or unshielded while carrying within it the sun, the brilliance of the sun, even into the darkest hours of the night, both figuratively and, and, and literally. So I wanted to include, um, talk a little bit more about this so that you do have support um, in, you know, in your toolbox of, of meditation practice. Things that other people, other individuals specifically, even the chief disciples have, who had in, uh, undergone these same, same, um, or dealt with these same shortcomings. Uh, so we need to keep this balance of, well, between these four bases. And there, therefore, we can create the causes and conditions um, to create and to cultivate that purity to take place in the heart, which makes it unshielded. So I want to jump forward. And because this is, as you noticed, it's a long sutta but many chunks of it are repetitions. Uh, I've in, translated all of them, of course, but that's why I wanted you to go over them on your own. Um, and it's also recorded online, by the way, on YouTube, uh, you can listen to it. So um, 
here I want to go to the section where, uh, yeah, so the ending of this portion and then how Lord Buddha talks about the abhinyas or the supernormal powers, how this uh, flows into that. Uh, uh, yeah. So in this manner, bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed by the bhikkhu, they bring him many fruits where they are of great benefit. Thus, bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu is able to employ many types of psychic powers, such as, while being one, he multiplies himself by becoming many. And while becoming many, he reverts back to being one. He appears and disappears without any obstructions, while moving through walls unhindered, whether embankments, rocks, or even mountains, as though passing through space. He dives into the earth and comes out of it as though it were water. He walks on water as though it were solid ground. And while sitting cross-legged, he travels through the air like a bird or remains suspended in the sky as he chooses. He touches the moon and the sun that are so massive and powerful just with his bare hand as he exercises his power over his body as far as the Brahma world. Now, as I mentioned earlier, in the Kevada Sutta from the Diganikaya Long Discourses, we see Lord Buddha being asked by a potential supporter uh, that uh, why don't you have one of your students to go, you know, display some psychic powers, basically entertainment. Um, and the Buddha ignores the first time, second time, third time, and finally he gives him a long explanation. He gets into the jhanas and explanations of what happens instead of uh, showing, uh, because it would have been just a magic show. And our path has nothing to do with that. And when you hear about a bhikkhu or someone claiming to be a bhikkhu or bhikkhuni or nun uh, who does these things, they're actually breaking some very serious, uh, you know, uh, rules. Uh, we're not supposed to, <laughs> even if the one has those abilities. Also, bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu can employ the psychic power of the divine ear, which is purified as it surpasses the human ear in its abilities, becoming one who is able to hear sounds that are not just human, but also divine, whether far or near. Bhikkhus, it is much like a man who, while traveling on the road, hears sounds of various large drums, tom-toms, cymbals, or trumpets. He would clearly distinguish them as, this is the sound of drums. That one is a tom-tom. This one is of cymbals. Those, are, uh, those other ones are trumpets playing. In very much the same way, the bhikkhu, while his mind is thus attuned, can easily hear with the divine ear which is purified as it surpasses the human ear in its abilities, becoming one who is able to hear sounds that are not just human, but also divine, whether far or near. So as I mentioned earlier, um, the clairvoyance or the Dibba Chaku, the divine eye, 
we need to distinguish that from having the Dhamma eye. Uh, one is supramundane, uh, the latter, not the former. So, and uh, having the divine eye does not necessarily mean that the person has uh, jnana dasana, knowledge and vision. You can be um, any person, any meditator who has not yet attained sotapanna stage, um, who has also, uh, you know, clairvoyance, let's say. Uh, and not every sotapanna has <laughs> the bachaku either. Um, so, uh, but you can if, if, if one would be working towards that. So just to make that clarification. Also bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu can employ the psychic power of blending his mind with another's mind as he becomes fully aware by seeing the thoughts in the minds of other beings whether human or non-human, having enveloped them all with his own mind. In this way, he sees clearly a mind that is lustful as a mind drenched in lust, and a mind without lust as a mind without lust. He sees clearly a mind that is hateful and angry as a mind drenched in hatred and anger, and a mind without hatred or anger as a mind without hatred or anger. He sees clearly a mind that is deluded as a mind that is deluded and a non-deluded mind as a mind without delusion. He sees clearly a constricted mind as a mind that is constricted and a non-constricted mind as not constricted. And if you remember constricted, that was about the dullness in the mind. He sees clearly a scattered mind as a mind that is scattered and a non-scattered mind as non-scattered. He sees clearly a boundless mind as a mind that is boundless and a non-boundless mind as not. He sees clearly as uh, an exalted mind uh, or exalted and wise mind as a mind that is exalted and wise and a non-exalted or unwise mind as not being exalted nor wise. He sees clearly a surpassable mind as surpassable and a non-surpassable mind as non-surpassable. He sees clearly a collected mind as collected and a non-collected mind as non-collected. He sees clearly a liberated mind as liberated and a mind that is yet to be released as not yet released. Also because when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu can employ the psychic power of recollecting his manifold past lives. Thus, he remembers his numerous past lives that is, one birth, two births, three births, four births, five births, 10 births, 20 births, 30, 40, 50 births, 100 births, 1,000 births, 100,000 births, many eons of world contractions, many eons of world expansions, many eons of world contractions and expansions, as he recalls each one clearly and in detail thus. There I was so named of such a family, with such an appearance, such was my food and nourishment, such were my experiences of pleasure and pain, such my lifespans, and after passing away from there I was reborn elsewhere, and there too I was so named of such a family, with such an appearance, such was my food and nourishment. Such were my experiences of pleasure and pain, and such was my lifespan. And passing away from there, I was reborn here. 
Also because when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu can employ the psychic power of knowing the destinations of beings as they die and reappear in the different realms of existence. Thus, with the divine eye, which is far superior to those of human beings and other animals, he sees clearly beings dying at the end of life and being reborn into exalted or miserable states, beautiful or ugly, fortunate or unfortunate as he sees and understands clearly how beings pass on to different states according to their actions. Thus, this is the second knowledge, by the way. The first knowledge was when the bhikkhu is able to see their own past lives. And these are part of the three knowledges that occur when the person is becoming an arahant. They are necessary uh, to take place. Some people argue that uh, by saying, well, you don't have to have all these three. One of them is uh, sufficient, meaning the last one, which uh, is the uh, knowledge of the destruction of the asavas, which we'll see in a minute. But just to go over this, this section, um, and uh, so the person will be able to see how these good beings who behave badly through their bodily actions, their speech and their mental actions, being disrespectful towards the noble ones while grasping onto their wrong views and on account of their wrong view in actions with the breakup of the body after death are now reborn in a state of misery, utter deprivation in a bad destination, in evil states and in the hells. But these worthy beings who behaved good through their bodily actions, their speech, and their mental actions, being respectful towards the noble ones, being right in their views, and on account of their right views and actions, with the breakup of the body after death, are now reborn in a state of happiness, in a good destination, even in the heavenly world. Thus, with the divine eye, which is far superior to those of human beings and other animals, he sees clearly beings dying at the end of life and being reborn into exalted or miserable states, be, being beautiful or ugly, fortunate or unfortunate, as he sees and understands clearly how beings pass on to different states according to their actions. And this is the third knowledge coming up. Also because when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed in this way, the bhikkhu employs the psychic power to know personally the destruction of the mental contaminants, the asavas. And he directly and finally sees clearly as it truly is, this is suffering. He directly knows and sees as it truly is, this is the origin of suffering. He directly knows and sees as it truly is, this is the cessation of suffering. He directly knows and sees as it truly is. This is the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And he directly knows and sees as it truly is. These are the contaminants. He directly knows and sees as it truly is. This is the origin of the contaminants. He directly knows and sees as it truly is. This is the cessation of the contaminants. He directly knows and sees as it truly is. This is the path leading to the cessation of the contaminants. And the contaminants are the asavas, sometimes translated as cankers, 
influx. Basic, they're the inflow and outflow. I like to call them sometimes leakage, uh, but I usually translate them as contaminants, mental contaminants. Uh, and, and although in the Nikayas and the suttas, we only see three kinds uh, of uh, the three asavas, meaning uh, um, kamasava, bhavasava, and avijasava. When later, about 300 years uh, after Lord Buddha's death, when the third council, um, we had the uh, Abhidhamma come into view, and the Abhidhamma introduced a fourth asava, which is the Dityasava, which is uh, the contaminant of conceit. Um, so, um, and when the bhikkhu knows and sees thus, his mind is liberated from the contaminant of sensual desire, from the contaminant of further becoming, and from the contaminant of ignorance. When it is released thus, there arises the knowledge, I am liberated, and he directly knows, birth is now finally destroyed. The holy life has been fully lived. What had to be done has now been done. There is nothing more to be done, nor any further state of becoming for me. Bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed thus, the bhikkhu having realized for himself and with direct and experiential understanding how the contaminants have now all been destroyed in him, he finally attains the taintless release of the heart, along with the release through wisdom. In this manner, bhikkhus, when the four bases of psychic power are cultivated and developed, they bring many fruits, for they are of great benefit. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Uh, just a quick word about the, some people might understand them uh, differently, but basically release of the heart versus the release through wisdom. Uh, you have arahants who have one and you have arahants who have both. They are called liberated in both ways. Uh, Venerable Sariputta, Venerable Mahamuddha, among others, had uh, experienced uh, arahantship in both ways. Um, you need to have wisdom in order to attain Nibbana. So wisdom is a common denominator in all arahants. It's not a difference in the attainment of awakening because they're all arahants. There's no separation between them, distinction. The only difference here is uh, uh, the addition of the eight liberations, they're called, or the eight releases, which we've talked about uh, in the previous sutta uh, series. Um, uh, the four boundless states, and uh, including, as well as the cessation, for example. That type of a bhikkhu is a person who has attained those and attains nibbana. So they're also able to attain the cessation. So Panya uh, Vimukti is uh, the liberation through wisdom. And the other one involves the jhanic states. Um, so um, a brief takeaway from today's session, basically, whatever our meditation object may be, uh, they must each have within them every single time you sit every single time you're mindful, uh, they need to encap, you know, capture, they need to have within them 
these four bases of psychic power. And no, they're not necessarily only for developing some psychic powers. They're not, okay? Just in case you have some personal issues with that. <laughs> so your object of meditation must carry with it chanda, the fervor, virya, persevering effort, uh, chitta, which is the directed mind or heart, and vimansa, which is the discerning quality of the mind, which is wisdom. So with that, I will uh, pause and uh, see if there are any questions and uh, that I will try to address. So hopefully you enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> I don't see enough uh, Dhamma Desanas being uh, offered on this theme, which is so important. Right, I thank you for your talk this morning. Um, I have several questions. Um, so I'll start with the last one first because it's freshest in my mind. You just said the object of meditation must carry each of these qualities. Now I'm trying to apply that to the spiritual friend that I get from Bante V. And so am I applying these qualities? Am I applying the qualities to my thoughts about the spiritual friend? Does the spiritual friend himself have to incorporate these qualities? I'm not quite sure how you're relating must carry the, each of these qualities to my object. Can you just clarify that a little, please? Yeah, of course. Um, it has everything to do with you, your practice, with your practice. In fact, even with the spiritual friend, uh, he's just there as a trigger, as an instigator to generate the loving kindness. But coming specifically to your question, uh, it has to do with what happens to you while you're sitting. So in essence, when you are encountering, when you are in a dogfight, in a hand-to-hand -hand combat with the five hindrances, this is such a powerful formula to bring into the mix, into, um, let's say, to bring up that fervor, that desire. Because oftentimes we forget why we're sitting. It becomes a habit. It's a, you know, it's a stalemate. It's like, nah, it's nothing. It's, it's another form of inertia or complacency. So that's, that's when you have a person who's been doing the same meditation, and, but they like it. There's a predictability factor about it. And they will never penetrate outside of those bounds. They will never go out and really explore because they find that to be kind of like matching their own character as a person. So, but when you bring in the spiritual uh, basis for spiritual success or psychic power, what you're doing is, uh-uh-uh, I'm adding more, more fuel here. This is necessary. Because it is bringing also, especially in the in the presence of vimansa or the, the examination or investigation, spiritual basis. What am I doing? Or so you don't have to engage intellectually. I need to clarify that. So it's not an intellectual um, nuance there. 
But the moment I'm finding myself fighting, fighting with myself, fighting, uh, maybe there's heat being generated, there's agitation in the mind, agitation, uh, where my energy is being weakened. I need to pull back a little bit because that also means that it's too strained. Uh, Lord Buddha, before he became uh, awakened, uh, he overheard uh, a musician teaching his student uh, how to uh, tune his, his sitar. Um, and the sitar had, uh, he says, um, the teacher is saying to the student, if you keep it slack too much, if you slacken it too much, it won't play. And if you tighten it too much, it will snap. And you're going to be short one string and you're not going to play that. So um, wisdom is necessary to allow us to see what's happening. Am I putting too much effort? Am I hating my friend? <laughs> There's another thing that happens with some people meditating and generating loving kindness. They end up being resentful towards the spiritual friend at one point or another, or at least towards themselves or feel guilty. So, uh, so they have to do with you. But I want to pause and ask um, how you're taking that, what, what I'm sharing with you in reference. Well, you're to clarifying it. It's still, I still have some questions, things like when I'm meditating normally, I'm trying to relax those thoughts that are coming in. But Vimanzara implies examining. So how much examining am I doing? And is that opposing the relaxing the thoughts that are you know, the, the stilling the mind. Yeah, um, there is such a thing as too much relaxation. <laughs> okay. Like when you are riding a bike. I was uh, explaining to another student this week how when I first learned how to ride a bike, I remember being so stiff in my wrists as if they were statues, basically, um, arms of a statue. In fact, the whole arm was so fixed and I was simply putting a lot of upper body strength into it so that I don't fall. And every single time I was falling, even though I'm doing it right in, in my head, the schematics, everything, I'm, I'm you know, looking at the horizon, da, 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 something was wrong because I am going to an extreme. Similarly, when I'm too relaxed, too relaxed, unable to hold my wrists are so limb, like gloves, basically, trying to hold the, the handle of the bicycle. It won't work. It is Vimansa when it comes in the examination and it looks as to how much effort am I putting? Because effort has to be there. But at the same time, it needs to be supported by um, good enough, enough amount of um, relaxation. Because what I see sometimes with meditators is they get too top heavy with something. One of these qualities. Initially, years ago, when I, uh, I used to do a lot of analysis in my head, a lot of wisdom was functioning, a lot of this and that, but a lot of analysis. Didn't have that much wisdom at times, like a lot of times. And um, so I thought that I was practicing meditation. 
until I sent a letter uh, to uh, a teacher in the Mahayana tradition, Zen tradition, Chinese, uh, one, uh, one of the major uh, 20th century uh, teachers who, who lost about 10 years ago, uh, Master Sheng Yin, uh, Sheng Yin. Uh, in, Italy, uh, in, in, in the East Coast, in New York. And he's, he was generous enough to write me back and said, no, that's not meditation. You're analyzing. Even though it was a different tradition, but it was so powerful for me to pull back and to see what I was doing. So it's not even just examination. You don't just use salt to flavor your meal. You need to use other ingredients. So the recipe works if we have all four in reference to these four bases. So, and that puts uh, a little bit more responsibility on you, yes, but that is the thing which is going to guarantee a consistent progress in your practice. Instead of being like groping in the dark because relaxing is, is just one tiny little part of the puzzle. That's not it. Because there needs to be elements of collectedness of mind, which require very deliberate uh, uh, putting of energy in a certain direction. And when it becomes too hot, too heavy, too rigid, that's when you're bringing in the relaxation to soften things up, to oil the engine, as it were. How, how is that working? And does that mean, I, I'm trying to get clear how far this carries through our progress as we go through the jhanas, because by the second jhana, we're giving up thinking and pondering. So again, that would, for the examination, to me, it seems like that's ended, but we can still continue with the energy. Do we lose some part of these uh, powers on the way through? Are we sticking with them all? Or is this only for the beginning, the first jhana, until we give up thinking and pondering? Brilliant question. I'm so glad you asked that. Uh, because there's so much confusion out there about this. And I've even seen teachers uh, misrepresenting the Dhamma, sadly. Uh, the examination does not halt, does not stop at the second jhana. It's the chattering. It's the subvocal speech that stops. Now there's a difference between panya or wisdom and the chatterbox. The wisdom, even we see this in the Anupada Sutta of uh, Majjhima Nikaya 111, where Venerable Sariputta describes, uh, Lord Buddha is describing how uh, he has gone through each of these jhanas and he was observant. He was mindful, he was aware, he was examining and investigating without the chicha. Each stage, he wasn't examining them, having come out of it and thinking, okay, what was that that I experienced? Except for obviously in the eighth jhana. But for each of these stages, the examination is there. In fact, the examination has to be there holding our hand with so much care all the way to arahantship. In answer to that last portion of your question, 
yes, absolutely, the four bases of power must be there with us. However, remember the grip, the rigid grip on the bike? So long as the person is practicing and trying different things and maneuvers and getting into the nuance of things, into the cadence of things, if you will, suddenly they're able to have the hands on the thing, I forgot what you call it, of uh, the bike, but still maintaining control while being relaxed at the same time, engaging the relaxation when there's no need for it. Like in the case of going downhill all of a sudden or something coming in, so you have to squeeze the brakes. Well, you can't be relaxed there now, can you? But not always pulling on the brakes. Most of the time, hopefully you're riding nicely. So your hands need to be relaxed, your body, your neck. Otherwise you're com coming off the bike and you're like, Ugh. I need a major chiropractic adjustment or something. And that's another uh, lead in to why so many people experience uh, tension. Uh, a lot of people I've seen being angry, including some meditation teachers, interestingly enough. So we need to be very careful what it is that we're doing during the meditation. So the four bases of power this is another way of understanding them. I like to offer this another like a tool if you could use four bases of power, keep your meditation fresh. They keep it fresh. Instead of stagnant. Okay, I'm going to go through the routines, I'm going to send loving kindness to my friend and get to this level or do this or do that. And then if, if I feel so tight, I'm going to practice some loving kindness or forgiveness to myself. I'm gonna do some walking meditation, okay, and then come coming back and sitting. To me, that's, that's not getting it because it takes the life part out, life, breathing life into your practice. Because your life, the real life that you're living, the work you do, your loved ones, how you relate to them, how you caress your cat, for example, that's more real than the meditation at that point, if, if done in that way, versus breathing fresh air into the practice by always looking. There is a part, a responsible part that you're playing by looking at how much fervor, how much enthusiasm am I putting into the practice? Why am I practicing is a good question to ask. Is it simply to gain some relaxation? Well, that's not it. How much energy am I putting in? The last thing that a person uh, who is very energized, was very driven, is a gung-ho type of a person uh, needs is a teacher coming and saying, well, you need to put more energy. Well, their whole narrative in life, their worldview revolves around putting energy into things. Well, there goes that. Instead, the teacher would have been doing a much better job if they came in and, and stressed on introduction and the introduction of softness and, and, and being able to relax more and seeing strength from that between these two, putting energy and being relaxed. So there is a constant work that is being done, but 
it is very enjoyable, like you're riding the bike, where it's no longer a chore. What what are you getting from what I'm saying? Is it helping you at all? I think putting together those three answers has helped me enormously. Thank you. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, now, this is another reason why um, I wanted to do these suttas, not to kind of just familiarize us with the suttas, which is, I think, hugely important for the sasana, because not enough people are even looking at them. We have seen them as artifacts or something, and just like we put them in a, you know, a bookshelf or something, the books or whatever, but they don't have relevancy to our lives. Meanwhile, they so much do, especially to our practice. By being inspired by the suttas, through the suttas, we improve our lives. Not just improve our lives, but even head straight to Nibbana. And that's why the Buddha was so adamantly uh, driven to protect the Dhamma. So he has all these mechanisms he put in place to protect it. However, you know, anicca, uh, an impermanency of, of, of inconstancy of life and it is conditioned the teachings not the dhamma um, and people are people so there was a lot of corruption and pollution and to this day of the dhamma so going back to the suttas the earliest pali canon to a great extent we still can capture the original teachings of lord buddha to a great extent so much so that you can become an arahant. You can have jnana dasana in this life, being the person you are in the sense of, of having a career, this and that. And how wonderful is that? But we need to be tweaking. We need to go back and see, ah, oh, that's, that's the glitch. That's the wall I'm hitting all the time. Because sometimes some teachers will not have all the answers. Rarely we do. But the suttas can provide us a glimpse. And, and uh, that's why I'm, I, I'm really glad that we're doing these series. So, and especially that it's, they're helping. Wonderful. Uh, any other thoughts, questions, comments? Bhante, thank you for your talk. I would like to speak to Greg's uh, question. Mm. I think it's, what might be happening is you know, I think it's very easy to confuse investigation with conceptual or discursive thought. Mm -hmm. And like you said, it's I, the way I'm understanding it, at least, is invest, examination being more of an intuitive sense of what's happening, sati and panya, what needs to be changed. And Greg, I don't know if you have had experiences where you know something but it's not necessarily something that you can, you know, conceptually describe or define. But you know it in your heart. So maybe it's more it's something that can be distinguished between, you know, something you know in your heart and another thing you can conceptualize in your brain, so to speak. So in my experience, the examination factor is more of an intuitive gauge 
um, but not necessarily like Bhante, you said, like this chatter, okay, I'm as if I'm stopping the meditation and then discursively thinking about what's happening, what then that, like, as you said, it's no longer a meditation. So that conceptual discursive quality versus with the examination, I think more of this felt sense of knowing something that needs to be changed or, or that's happening. I don't know if that could help, but I just had that um, comment to share. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely, as far as, as what you said, I'm glad you mentioned the word intuition. Um, it's all about that. And you can, and, and I noticed, Greg, you were nodding when uh, Damadina asked, I don't know if you wanted to respond to hers, uh, please. Oh. So uh, basically, um, the intuitive sense says uh, so much to us about an experience without the need for the introduction of, of concepts. And remember, when we did the Madhupindika Sutta, the Honeyball discourse, it was all about uh, uh, relinquishing our attachment to discursive and specifically proliferation of ideas and thoughts and notions and concepts, perceptions. And ultimately, as we progress, uh, there's a sifting. And in fact, there's this shedding of perceptions that need to be taking place. So if you're progressing, if you're, you're meditating and you're noticing that you're having more and more perceptions to deal with or adding, you're not progressing at all. Progress is directly related with how much or how much less there is perceptions in the mind. This is key. And that has uh, that plays beautifully into Yatabu Tangpajanati, which you've heard me say so many times, seeing things the way they come to be. And that's why we say Jnana Dasana. When you see something, you don't need words. You know it. You feel it. Like you see someone that you love. Or recognize or see uh, or uh, an emotion. Um, or see someone or a situation that immediately generates certain feelings within you. Minus the words, minus the concepts. And that is uh, why it is also a hindrance. Vitakka vichara can be a hindrance, as even though they're factors of, of jhanic factors with which we can know where we're at on the jhanic ladder. But vitakka vichara, thinking and pondering, uh, that pondering and the thinking part drop, thinking discursively to be specific, uh, like Damadina was saying. So, uh, but the feeling part, the intuitively knowing part, otherwise we're talking about the the, uh, trance-like thing that you find in different traditions, like claim to be the same as as Buddhism, like in the case of Sufism. I once, years ago, I was attending a a workshop with uh, some famous Sufi master uh, in uh, upstate New York, New Lebanon, it's called city. 
And um, I was to my shock, because I was open at that time, I was doing a lot of comparative religion studies, and I was so open, I was in the, in the camp that thinks like, oh, all religions are the same type of thing, which is just nonsense. Um, so I sat there and I'm listening to this teacher and he said, that's why in, in, in um, uh, Buddhism and Sufism, you know, Sufism is better than Buddhism because Nibbana is far less of an emotion than what we experience in this thing that they call um, fana, which is uh, almost like annihilation of the self to give into the, the divine or something like that. And I was like, whoa. Whoa. So there needs to be an understanding of because there was a physical reaction almost within me when I heard that, because I felt within me viscerally the falsity of what I was hearing. And I hadn't developed in my practice. I hadn't, I was just barely starting in my path and in the Dhamma, but something did not sit well. I knew it viscerally, I knew it intuitively. Um, so we need to give it some credence. We need to give that trust. It's like a person, uh, I sometimes tell uh, people who are challenged with cooking to open up the cupboards and to share, you know, the seasoning, the spices, to try, to try to experiment a little bit with this. So many of us are threatened by that as, as if we're, and, and we, we just don't want to do it. What if I screw it up, the dish? But then eventually it can get to such a point where you don't even think about the me measurements and it comes out perfect every single time. There's the trust, just like the bikers trusting how they handle. I, I'm boggled when I see how mountain climbers come down a steep cliff where either way it's like so steep that if they fall in either direction, they're dead or at least break a few hundred bones. But they do it because the bike and they are one. I would say I've never done that. So I'm, I'm just using other experiences to measure up to that and, and some uh, find some correlation. But the intuitive uh, element comes in. And we need to trust that some more. And now I also see, Peggy, you had a question written here. Uh, in regards to meditation objects. Uh, so one is about your practice and the other one has to do, well, you're saying you have never had a meditation object per se, even though you've been practicing anapana, which is breathing in and out, uh, mindfulness of the breath, and are meditation objects necessary at all times? Depends on how much you want to gain out of the practice like everything. Um, I think I mentioned last time how, you know, people go to, um, um, I know it happened to me, but many people tried in different fields where they go to the instructor and say, how long will it take me to master this skill? Well, it depends. What do you want to get out of it? So similarly, when your meditation object is something that is only reserved for your sitting and you're sitting, let's say it's an hour or 35 minutes or 45 minutes, 
then it's just going to be equivalent to that in, in, in its return, shall we say. But if you make that meditation object to be part of your life, where you take it with you everywhere you go, and then it unfolds, then your life turns into, it starts demonstrating the different elements that you find in the Dhamma. So it's no longer just a medicine to kind of, you know, silence certain undesirable experiences in your life. Like most people use meditation for initially, at least some for their whole lifetime. But in this practice, we take the meditation into your life. We invite it and we take it all the way. That's how I teach it anyhow. So meditation object uh, has to be with you wherever you go, especially in the case of anapanasati, which is the breath, which is always with you. So observing the breath, and by the way, that is answering your question also as to what is a meditation object. That is your meditation object. Unless, uh, you know, um, you would do metta practice. It's always good to be uh, using only one meditation unless uh, advised otherwise by a teacher, okay? Otherwise, it's going to be a salad bowl and you're really not going to advance much, even in, you know, in either one of these objects because each one is specific. Each one is very powerful, uh, but you cannot mix uh, at least uh, at this stage. So taking the breath and the way you do the breath is basically you observe the point of contact where the breath is coming into the body. I'm pointing at my the area above my upper lip, this area, and just below the, well, the entry point is for the nostrils. So some people describe it as the whole area around your mouth and the bottom part of your nose. So as the breath is coming in, you're not following the breath while they're going in or going out. You're simply focusing on that area uh, as it comes in. So, and you're looking at the, you know, the qualities, the texture of how that breath feels feels again remember what i was saying about the light perception and metta it's all about feeling because the mind the brain will respond a lot better um to that i believe it has something to do with our mammalian brain uh, portion which is a big chunk of it so uh, yeah that that uh, but you have to make a decision and not to you know if you're doing metta you need to stick to metta uh, if you're doing breath, you need to stick to the breath until um, your, you know, your teacher advises you otherwise. Um, so, any other questions, thoughts? Of course. All right. So, uh, let us uh, share some merits. May suffering ones be suffering free and the fear struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief and may all beings find health relief. May all beings share in these merits that we have thus acquired for the acquisition of all kinds of wholesome happiness. May beings inhabiting space and earth, devas and nagas of mighty power share in these merits of ours. May they long protect the Buddha's dispensation. Sad, sad, sad. 
May you be well. May the triple gems blessings be upon you and your loved ones. And I'll see you uh, next week.